This is the Macworld Podcast, episode 491 for January 20th, 2016. Welcome back to the Macworld Podcast, everyone. It's the middle of January. That is the month in which not that much happens in the Apple world, but there are th still things afoot. And uh, when there's news, when it breaks, we pick it up and try to put it back together. I am a Macworld senior contributor, Glenn Fleischman. And with me today is Leah Yamshun, Associate Managing Editor at Macworld. Hello, Leah. Hi, Glenn. Hello. Susie is on assignment with family, so uh, she's not with us this week. <clears throat> she's enjoying a beautiful weather somewhere else. I'm sure it's beautiful. She sent me a picture of rain pouring so hard, <laughs> sheeting rain, <laughs> that you couldn't even see through the windshield as you're oh, driving. Oh, man. It kind of mirrors how it is here in San Francisco today, except for I imagine in Florida, it's like muggy and balmy and all sorts of delightful weather going on over there. This is the great season for weather. Uh, I think, yeah, nationally right now, the weather is oh so delightful everywhere. You're freezing or flooding or uh, we had a fun uh, downpour followed by sunlight, followed by a rainbow, followed by uh, more downpour. And it was um, Seattle was like uh, it was apocalyptic. It was very entertaining. Wow. At least you got a rainbow in there. That's always kind of nice. Very briefly. And in front of the rainbow, we saw a hummingbird sitting at the top, poised at the top oh. of a tree limb. And a it's the rainbow behind it. I managed to capture. I did not get a, a lifetime achievement award photo out of that, but I did get a picture. <laughs> but you got a lifetime achievement award in your mind of That's that right. beautiful scene. I so know Humm go. a hummingbird and a rainbow. What when does that happen? Uh, well, life is not all hummingbirds and rainbows, unfortunately. <laughs> life is also uh, politics and encryption. And um, I thought we'd lead off the show this week with um, something that I was – I didn't even know where this came from. Is You know, Donald Trump, we've been hearing a lot about him. And um, he has a lot of things to say. This is not a political podcast. We won't get into most of the things he says. Uh, but he made this extraordinary statement the other day. Were you surprised when he said that he's going to somehow, like, force Apple if he were elected to – make its products, its computers I'm, in America? What the heck? I mean, nothing he really says surprises me anymore. Um, I just <clears throat> don't know how he could possibly enforce that and why he was just singling out Apple. I don't know. I guess it's uh, he sees a lot of people holding up iPhones. There's a good photo of people like holding up cameras to take pictures of them uh, him when they're near them. Um, yeah, I can understand the intent. I mean, what's interesting, remember when Tim Cook, before the uh, the garbage, I'm sorry, the uh, round-shaped uh, <laughs> cylinder Mac Pro was released, they said they're going to make that in America, and they'd built right. new manufacturing processes. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, they'd built new manufacturing processes, and uh, they, they'd they highly automated the process to, to eliminate some of the cost of labor involved. But uh, I think, you know, Tim Cook has talked to this, and it's an interesting point. Uh, I've spent um, a reasonable amount of time over the last few years, talking to people about manufacture, uh, mostly on the Kickstarter scale, like, you know, from units from hundreds to even tens of thousands where people have been uh, suddenly in a position to make products. And a lot of them had to figure out Chinese manufacturing and mm. offshoring. And the thing that keeps coming out at that level and some of the folks I talk to at higher levels inside companies who work routinely with a much larger scale Chinese manufacturers is that China is to set up to turn on a dime. I mean, they can just, you know, the the hoverboard manufacturer, those companies, there was a piece in uh, was it New York Magazine and New York Times, the companies making hoverboards in China were making something entirely different months before. And hoverboards became a big thing. And they said, great. And, you know, snap of the finger, they retool. And uh, suddenly you have, you know, hundreds of factories churning out hoverboard components. And Cook's point was, 
uh, and I thought this was, I've heard this again and again, is uh, we simply don't have the kind of uh, like skills necessary in America at the scale necessary to do a lot of the kind of manufacturing. Like he was talking about a dye and tool uh, uh, manuf- makers, and he said you could fit all the ones in America in the room that were in. He was in some uh, Charlie Rose's studio, and he said in China it would take several football fields. And, and I hear that again and again is that it's not that we're necessarily uncompetitive from a labor standpoint. And like one of the estimates is an iPhone costs between about twelve fifty and $30 a unit for labor. So relatively small part of its actual uh, manufacturing cost. Uh, and uh, which is maybe like in the three to $400 range, I think for the, the uh, top of the line ones. And wow. yeah. yeah, I mean, it's a small piece, but um, anyway, it's not that we can't do it in America. It's just, we don't have the, uh, I mean, we, we could conceivably, and they could do, they, there could be more automation that might replace some labor costs. There might be uh, higher levels of productivity. There are some issues about Chinese productivity and the quality assurance in those because of the, you know, uh, turnover of labor, other skills, um, you know, factory conditions. But uh, you need people who can, um, who know how to, you need expertise. I mean, how many right. people do you know who have manual factory skills? It's just not a common thing in the U.S. And if we, if this was something that was going to happen, there would need, we'd need years of training and groundwork and construction to get, you know, the factories in place and deals to get all the parts necessary and the the training for the, the labor involved. I just don't see that happening here anytime soon. Um, and I think Apple... You know, even though there has been a lot of controversy involved around their manufacturing plants in China, I think they've made a solid effort to, like, step it up with their conditions and providing better wages and and things like that. Um, So would if the shift would be manufacturing here, would that kind of, like, erase some of the work that they've been doing over there in their current plants, like I'm, I'm just not sure. So you know, I think, and I think we benefit from having. I mean, it's a weird thing. It's like that is not very much money that we'd be recapturing. So most sure. of the value here is, I mean, all the rest of the money comes from you know buying chips from, uh, you know, Germany and Singapore. Um, we're designing stuff here. There's the marketing here. Research and development is primarily, as I understand it, in the United States, uh, or the people working on it. All the salaries and and then the profit accrues to Apple shareholders or executives who are mostly in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, so even with overseas money and the whole tax repatriation issue that's going on now, that's that could have cost Apple billions of dollars of its huge cash hoard. If uh, depending on what the European Union decides about its Irish tax, that's by the way the Irish tax situation, which is a whole other thing. <laughs> right, but it's a rounding error for Apple's. Uh, uh, fortunes. It's um, it's unclear to me whether trying to recapture the labor costs would actually be useful. I mean, you're pulling up China. You're helping China to become uh, to provide a better standard of living for its people by having, uh, you know, by it being productive in that way. And it's it's come a long way. I heard this story uh, years ago. I was working on a industrial design story about a uh, this great thing called a tea stick. There's a lot of them like it now, but it's a uh, it was a perforated steel sleeve and you pull back and it would be like a scoop and you'd scoop tea out, slide the sleeve down and then you could stick it, a uh, whole thing with stainless steel and it's got a little hook on the end and you stick it in a hot water and you brew your tea with this. So it was like a tea ball, but very mm-hmm. clever design. People who made it, they had been doing things like designing bicycles and they had this idea for a thing and they mocked it up and what they told me, this is about 10 years ago, they sent out I think 40 or 50 bids to steel 
manufacturers, fabricators in the United States, and none of them could make it. They made one call to China and found a manufacturer through a, a partner they had who did everything exactly to spec. So it wasn't even cost. They would have been even with the weight and the number they were making, they would have been absolutely happy to make it in America, and no one wow. could do what you know, one call to China, right. they're able to get exactly the product. And I own a, I own a couple of them. I've bought them as gifts for people. And, you know, they're extremely well made and they were not super expensive. And this cost of steel as a component was very small. So mm. anyway, yeah. So Trump can go ahead, I guess, and I guess we're going to have a fiat economy if he's elected and he's just going to tell companies what to do. Um, it's like, do, pe <laughs> do, do people forget that he was a private business owner for a long, you know, like that, that's his MO. Like he knows what, that would mean to take manufacturing out of China. like he he I knows what all the complications are. I just don't get why he <laughs> check would the check say the labels in his clothes. So like passe about about it. So check the label oh, in his man. Trump uh, branded clothes. <laughs> they say made in China on Seriously. them. Seriously, there's some pictures that go over the net about that. Whenever he decries Mexico or China, they're like uh, labeling Mr. Trump. So it's not a political <laughs> issue. This is entirely about business and technology, but. Uh, Here's right. this. This is another political issue, though, because we're not talking politics. Uh, it's about crypto, and uh, Tim Cook has become um, is the Edward Snowden of the corporate world. <laughs> he is speaking out. Um, I think more and more vociferously for you know a lot privately, sometimes publicly and clearly, and uh, most recently he stated you know pretty strongly that the he wants the Obama administration to stop asking for backdoors into encryption. This seems kind of a and this is a pretty prominent role for someone to take. He's got a lot to lose, I guess, but he's also got a lot of power. Yeah, it's very bold. But I think it makes it makes iPhone users and Apple fans and even people not in the Apple community, people that really care about their own privacy, I think are really applauding that he's taking such a strong stance and he's not like beating around the bush about it or anything. Yeah, I uh, I'm. I'm delighted by it because I, I mean, Susie and I have talked about this in previous podcasts. So listeners, sorry, I'm going to try not to bore you by, by saying the same thing again, but it's just anytime you talk about putting a back door in, even if you're a total firm believer in, um, a kind of law and order situation in which you want the government to always be able to lawfully intercept communications that could be used by people committing crimes. There's warrants, all that stuff. Even if you believe that backdoors aid criminals, uh, gov totalitarian governments, both against us, uh, and against their own people and corporate espionage. So like any backdoor is actually going to backfire and produce less good response for law enforcement is my take much less. Mm -hmm. And then you have, you know, you can then go entirely into the personal liberty area too. So same, you know, same time, Tim saying this, we get a bill being proposed in, uh, New York, uh, the New York Senate about, um, it would prohibit Selling a smartphone that couldn't be unlo unlocked or decrypted by the device manufacturer or operating system provider. Seems like a little overreach to me. It's crazy. It's really crazy. It's very extreme that I think, too, like this bill is saying that it would kind of backdate it to January 1st, 2016. So I'm it would sure be. It's legal. Yeah, right? Because they they're saying any phone sold after that date would be. Like subject to to being fine, like the manufacturer would be fined for selling it. Um, it's that doesn't seem legal. Or I, okay. yeah, I thought there was a, what is it called? Um, I thought this is one of the rights that was fought at the birth of the country, which is uh, uh, no ex post facto legislation. Is like you can't have laws that 
criminalize things that already happened um, mm-hmm. because then they could criminalize anything you ever did after you did it. So I don't know if it meets a constitutional test. I'm not sure about something like this because it's a fine um, base thing, but it's just, it comes back to the same thing. I mean, what'll happen is, uh, all smartphones by every manufacturer, except maybe BlackBerry. Cause I think BlackBerry claims they can unlock stuff. I forget if they, if that's true. Cause I think they have some centralized data storage. So they have the ability in some circumstance, uh, cause their CEO was trying to promote the fact that they were very happy to give stuff to law enforcement. Right. BlackBerry is just trying to get anybody on their side, no matter who it is at this point. So. Oh, man. Yeah. And it's also when you say law enforcement, everyone thinks about like in their head, I think you say law enforcement, you think, oh, Interpol, FBI, uh, you know, Scotland Yard, uh, as opposed to Chinese national authorities, uh, mm-hmm. Iranian authorities, Russian authorities. These are all law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, nobody wants to deal with that part. I, I can't imagine this will this will go through and one would hope that Governor Cuomo would. Um, veto it if it were somehow passed because uh, it would essentially – I just think if this happened, there's a fine of $2,500 per device uh, if sold. And uh, I know Apple and certainly Google are not going to make these changes. Right. So would that mean that uh, all smartphone sales halt in New York State if the law goes into effect? I, I don't see that happening. I, guess, I don't yeah. see this bill passing. And uh, I mean, w- would that mean – what if you're like a resident of New York State and you cross the border, you go over to New Jersey or Connecticut to <laughs> sign a contract and get a new phone? Or I guess you don't even have to sign a contract anymore. But you know, it's too there's too much gray area right now. I think with this, this will be like uh, fireworks. Like, hey, I can't buy fireworks at home, so I'm gonna exactly. go drive across the border and buy my secret illicit smartphone. Uh, it's just. Uh, well, legislatures have to do something. But I mean, you know, the thing is that would be more effective is, of course, having uh, uh, better uh, – th- th- there could be better coordination among law enforcement. I mean, that's the thing. That the focus is always put on if we could only decrypt the phones, then you find out that in the Paris bombings, uh, no encrypted systems were using. They were just text messaging. They were sending mail unencrypted. Uh, even when the tools are available that would put them beyond the reach, they don't use them and mm-hmm. you know, p- because that's not – it's not convenient enough. Encryption can be very difficult to use. And when it's readily available in a system like iMessage, uh, terrorists and criminals don't always trust it because they don't necessarily trust that Apple's representations of it being unbreakable are true or that the government uh, can't find a way to get in. Or the government, you know, there's other tools. The FBI has the – you can read these hilarious. They're not conspiracy sites. <laughs> there's the claim, and I've seen some documentation of it, that – um uh, you know, some of these national security FBI, they can cut a hole in a wall – go into a place, search it, and then they will rebuild the wall and repaint it so that no one knows anyone was in there. It mm. seems a little absurd, but there are accounts of it, people finding strange things and whatever. So that may be at the conspiracy theory level. But there's even tools like uh, – I remember writing a few years ago about um, – I think it was Weeby Tech made these. It was an electrical uh, removal device. So you could push kind of a shunt into a plug in the wall – and pull it out and keep it powered with a UPS so you could move a computer from one location to another without it powering down. What? And it's, I mean, it's really straightforward. It's just, it's just, you're basically plugging a plug in like between the tines of a plug. It's kind of wild. Um, but it's a tool for, you know, it's this forensics tool. So all these things exist. And, uh, you know, the backdoor thing and encryption, I think is a SOP when it's like, no, they can actually get warrants. They could wiretap. They could put in, um, you know, the legality of putting in key mapper or uh, key loggers. All those things could happen. Yeah. 
it's a funny world. Uh, and speaking of malware, this is our, um, it's a old story made new again. I was writing about this, uh, just went up a couple days ago. Um, another gatekeeper exploit, uh, in, um, OS 10. Um, so I don't know if you remember, cause it's, these are all kind of obscure. I mean, I write about them cause I'm writing the, on the security beat, but, uh, the gatekeeper, I mean, you know, the gatekeeper tool is Apple's attempt to prevent, uh, software from running on OS 10 that, uh, isn't authorized basically. I mean, you know, there's the three, there's the different modes. Like you can only, and this is so and people have different opinions about it. You can set uh, the security and privacy so that people can only run, uh, or you can choose on your own machine to only run software downloaded from the Mac app store, or which I think the setting most people has is Mac app store plus apps from known developers where they mm -hmm. have to be part of the ecosystem or anything. And even if you have it set to only Mac app store and uh, registered developers, you can always bypass that and choose specifically with like a, you know, right click to open uh, software from unsigned developers. So last year, a researcher discovered that inside the package that was, the, so you can have a, <clears throat> excuse me, you have a, like a DMG file that you download from a developer and it'll have a signed binary. It's encrypt or it's got a cryptographic signature that matches. It will launch. It'll warn you and say, Hey, it's all cool. Right. But then that encrypted binary can launch other files in the same package. And those other files aren't tested to see whether they're signed as well. So this researcher discovered he could swap out components uh, from some major software packages that are out there. If he intercepted the package swapped in something malicious and it would run without warning the user. Not good. That's yeah. so scary. Yeah. And it was, uh, I think I forget if Photoshop was one of them. It may have been because it's any like script or other tool inside. And, uh, and he reported it to Apple. He did proper disclosure. Apple released patches to fix it. And it was not necessarily found in the wild. You couldn't like, uh, it wasn't a tool to distribute malware. You'd still have to intervene uh, and uh, the, the attacker would have to make sure the legitimate packages when downloaded were modified in transit basically, or they'd have to hijack a developer's site to take advantage of this. So anyway, same developer, I got a call from, from his uh, company saying, you know, he's going to do a new presentation. Like, Oh, what's this about? It's like, eh, it's the same thing. <laughs> so mm -hmm. his issue was Apple patched specific things. They blocked. Um, do you remember X protect? I wonder, I never know if people know about this tool. I don't. Tell me more about it. Well, it's a funny thing. It's Apple, you know, both Gatekeeper and XProtect aren't labeled in OS X. So if you go to look for them, you will not find them. If you search, mm -hmm. you can find them. Gatekeeper, uh, I think you pulled up, uh, you, we were posting an article, and either you or I found there's a Gatekeeper icon that's only on Apple's site. It's yeah. Not, it's not and, I think it's, and I think it's old. I think it's from... It might be like even before Mavericks, but yeah, it's, it's like, like mm, okay, we'll go with it. <laughs> yeah, it's not flat. It's like a yeah. weird drawing of a castle. And it, right, it's not in the interface. So XProtect is the same thing. XProtect is a uh, like a definition signature file like used with malware software. And Apple automatically updates it behind the scenes. And uh, I don't know if you can even turn it off. It's like an OS ten thing. And so it checks for specific uh, like when you launch a program, it checks before you launch, it launches rather, it checks to make sure that it's not uh, registered as um, uh, like a kind of a summary of the file that they make of it called a signature isn't in this XProtect list. So Apple added the specific packages that this fellow Patrick Wardle uh, found uh, and they fixed one flaw as a generic thing. But he said, I went back and looked in five minutes, I found more ways to break it. So he's reported to Apple. Uh, I talked to Apple and um, they're aware of this. It sounds like uh, they wouldn't confirm this, but they said, we keep working on it. Um, 
Patrick Wardle said uh, that Apple told him they're working on a more comprehensive fix. And, you know, Leah, I think the easy answer out of this is that um, there's two things. I've written about this a bunch of times, too, is I don't think we can trust downloading software from anything but a developer site or Apple. Yeah, definitely. And uh, it it kind of I'm still puzzled that people still do download software from from unsafe sites. Um, Maybe they found the link through, you know, another site or somewhere else. Like, I'm just I'm, I'm not sure, but I. Uh, I think that's a good rule of thumb is always from the Mac App Store or directly from the developer's site. And if make got to make sure it's a secure site, too. That's the big thing. And I think developers have to stand up. Um, Wordle did a survey of, um, I think it was all of the malware and security software vendors last year. I don't think he's redone it. And all of them were delivering their downloads via unsecured web. And normally it doesn't Whoa. matter. Yeah, it's for, for non-e-commerce purposes – it used to be that didn't matter, but we're actually moving to an all uh, secure web world uh, because without uh, having web security or like a secure web connection, I should say, you don't know if the other site's legitimate. It's possible to intercept that traffic and rewrite it without anyone being the wiser. And Wardle's distribution technique, he said, look, here's what could happen. You go to you know, malware server or malware uh, uh, company, no, sorry, anti-malware company A, and uh, you go to do a download. And if somebody has interposed themselves on a network, and this can happen at a country level, there's some countries that have had this issue. Someone could get access to a network, uh, air, like a data center or a network uh, control point. And uh, if they manage to interpose themselves, um, and this stuff's being monitored, it's not like it's happening all the time, but it's definitely a place uh, – where governments certainly try to get access and criminals want it, they could be uh, intercepting a download. You start one from this site and you think you're getting a legitimate file, but if it's not a secure connection, anything could be sent to your machine. And so a substituted file with a malware payload could be substituted. Now the likelihood, Ah. you know, Apple, because a lot of software for Mac is distributed directly um, through the Mac app store, Mac owners have a really fragmented kind of software they download. So, the likelihood of any given package being compromised is low, I think, or being t- being received by you compromised is low. But especially if you go to third-party download sites, um, the odds are higher that something can be modified. And then this is a vector. You double-click, you install. It says, hey, this, co- this is cool. You want to open it from the internet? Yup. And then you think you've done everything right, and suddenly you have malware. So that's uh, developers need to step up and just switch to HTTPS. It's, there's no more cost. It used to cost more. You have to have higher end servers and buy expensive certificates. And now it's really effectively the same price to serve. It's just, you have to, you know, people rebuilding websites and, and what have you. All this security news, Leah, it's very scary. (laughs) Yeah. So do you think, do you think Apple should be making this more of a priority or do you think they're doing what they should be doing? I feel like they're falling behind in terms of like, – I feel like they should be jumping on top of this. I mean people mm-hmm. give uh, uh, Google uh, a lot of uh, crud about, say, Android security issues that are unpatchable in previous releases, which is a huge deal. There's like a billion devices that may have security flaws that may never be able to be updated uh, in that world. I don't think there's a reason for Apple to be delaying. And I think they could put more priority on it. I don't think it's a resources issue. Um, I think it's just how – important they see things because they look at something like this and I think it maybe they're evaluating it as so unlikely. They're like, yeah, yeah, it's on the roadmap. But when you have issue after issue last year, uh, there were open firmware issues um, that went on for a long time. And uh, 
were very serious, but they could be exploited. You know, you couldn't be exploited easily or remotely. I mean, I think that's the problem is like things, there's that big gap between, uh, uh, flaws that can be exploited by anybody anywhere in the world against your computer and flaws that require targeting or physical access. And I do think Apple doesn't pay enough attention to the more narrow flaws. I think those are actually still uh, quite important because they're just another way, again, for uh, it's government agents, government actors, maybe foreign governments from the country you're in, uh, criminals, private investigators, you know, anybody who has access to tools that get distributed, they can do this. And if the thing isn't patched, then it's just another way for all of these parties, even if you specifically don't have anything to hide, you're not involved in litigation, you don't think you're the subject of, uh, you know, foreign governments trying to find what's on your computer, mm-hmm. it just adds up. So I don't know. I feel like Apple could devote, um, have more transparency, devote more time and have a, a regular, a more regular schedule. And Microsoft tries to do that, uh, a regular patch uh, date so that uh, IT people are set up. Adobe has regular patch dates. Um I just think uh, for all the exploits that get reported, did did you see that story that Apple had the greatest number of exploits reported last year? Yes, I did. And and that was like simple counting, but I think right, it right, shows right. that people. I mean, so you can't tell which of them were exploited in the wild and which were important, but you know they're out there. So I feel like I don't I don't know if they're doing the most thorough job they could be doing. That's my take. Well, hopefully we'll get an update from them really soon about this gatekeeper issue. Yeah, I feel like they're and, doing more. Uh, like, I mean, uh, you've been on top of uh, iOS 9.3. I have not installed a beta yeah. yet. Have you installed a beta? I have not installed the beta. I'm I'm too scared these days to do that unless I really need to test things that are coming yeah, up. Yeah, I don't have... Um, I don't have a secondary iPhone anymore. I lent it out. So I know boohoo that we have multiple <laughs> iPhones. But um, yeah, for my primary device, I'm always like a little wary about betas, especially at this stage of the game when it's a brand new version of iOS, like typically in the summer after WWDC. I always put that on my primary device to get used to it. But mm-hmm. with these smaller ones, I prefer to put it on my secondary device. But I'm interested that they're putting out so many small updates. Like I don't remember mm-hmm. did any of the other iOSs. I think Susie and I were trying to remember this too. But did they get to dot three? And it's only January. Um, yeah, and each each dot release has actually had some like pretty big features in it. So uh, yeah, maybe I should just bite the bullet and put it. I on know. My I phone. keep thinking about. It. <laughs> I've had interesting responses. I wrote a, a Mac nine one one about getting out of the beta programs for iOS and OS ten, and you know, OS ten is relatively simple. You kind of there's a configuration thing in software uh, update in uh, the system preferences, but uh, and it generally works. But iOS, like once you do the beta, you're kind of stuck. I mean, yeah. if you can't. You have to wipe your. You have to have a backup pre beta. Then you have to completely wipe your phone, and then you have to re, uh, restore. Uh, and some people have found that didn't work or they then could, they were still getting beta notifications. They couldn't stop them. And mm-hmm. even though they'd gone through the whole procedure to opt out. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it's kind of a treadmill once you get on it. Right. Um, but I'm wondering with the, it seems like Apple is doing more significant frequent updates, like micro updates than they have in previous years. And, uh, I mean, 9.3 is going to bring a bunch of interesting features. And then uh, Yosemite, excuse me, Yosemite, whatever release run, El Capitan <laughs> has a bunch of things that are coming too. So I'm hoping that this spells like a uh, direction of more improvements. So maybe they have a big security update. You know, I've heard uh, someone talking recently, and I'm trying to remember the source. Uh, I'm sure it was reliable. Let's pretend. But the, uh, that that maybe Apple isn't going to do flagship every year. Like this year was the, the offbeat on the cadence. So they did uh, iOS 9 and 
and El Capitan were more maintenance releases in right. some ways. But um, I don't know if you've heard anything about that or if that if that seems like a good idea to you that maybe they should even slow down further and just be doing, you know, let's have 9.5 come out in September instead of 10.0. I'd be okay with that. Um, especially if they're kind of timing the release with new hardware. Mm-hmm. It might be more interesting to see what the software can do for new and old hardware because typically like you know with ios 9 it introduced all of these it ushered in new features that you could really only access if you had the success or the success plus Mm -hmm. so it might be more interesting to see kind of a half release but that has a more like broad set of features that can be used across all devices and works more smoothly um i also wonder how much like, I feel like a, a lot of, you know, the average Apple iPhone users don't really care that much about big iOS releases. Yeah. So a more incremental update might make uh, the next release when iOS 10 comes out, you know, maybe that will make it more, there'd be more fanfare around it. There'd be a higher adoption rate, even though the iOS adoption rates are still pretty fast. Um, who knows? That's an, that's an interesting thought. I would. I just was. I was happy that they slowed down, like predicted. But I'm like, I could even do a slower. Well, I mean, with the, with the amount of stuff they're releasing in minor updates, it doesn't feel super slow, but it feels much more measured. I don't feel like we're, it's going off. They're going off quite as a uh, half cock. But you know, now they've got watchOS, iOS, mm-hmm. tvOS, OS 10. Something's out of place there. OS 10 needs to become macOS. I guess that's going to happen probably. Probably right? that would make sense. Lowercase M though is going to be lowercase. <laughs> I hope not. That'd be awful. I don't know. Oh, uh, but but it feels like that's something that, uh, th- that with four operating systems that have to stay in sync. Like, are yeah. they really going to keep pushing as hard? And I think that's a fundamental thing. Like, I feel like iOS. You know, some releases felt really useful. The flat release made sense. And iOS sure, 8, sure. iOS 8 was great because it perfected the flat release. And iOS 9 felt like a great maturity. They didn't try to force too much and very little broke. It was a good release. So was El Capitan. I felt everything mm-hmm. had stabilized. Like, do you want to challenge that stability? Like, do they need to break through? Is there really competition in operating system features uh, across, you know, Android and Windows 10, uh, even Chrome OS? I don't feel like that challenge is there this year so i wonder right. if they can just be incremental maybe that a, would be that would be so interesting and so different let's have a maturity we'll year see. That's, be nice uh speaking of maturity well i guess it's not exactly maturity uh i mentioned tvos a moment ago and um now do you have a new apple tv it's i a, do all yep. right you're one of the, the proud and the not few probably i think they sold a bunch of them it's like i know it's it's funny because there's that generational thing of like well you know the one i had worked fine versus I got to test it or it's so cool. I want to be able to use the new features and um, pushes people over the over the edge there. Right. I think I was in the second wave of people that got I got mine in the holiday wave. There was like the rush when it first came out yeah. and then like wave two is holiday. And then I don't know. When will the wave three be? When it's they finally great. release bundled, sure. when they get bundled channels, I think. Oh, when they actually have yes, streaming. Yes. That's what I, I mean. That's the thing that's been missing. And that's one of the rumors why it was uh, – delayed for so long as they're kind of holding on for that to happen they're like ah screw it we're gonna ship like oh that's why apple remote app wasn't updated but Mm -hmm. uh, since now so did you get it after the update that enabled the uh, remote app to work with it uh yes yeah so it's a different experience right so you never went through the full pain right that's good 
it probably seems now curious. I mean, it may seem like I was so frustrated by it. I barely used it until I used it a little bit. I used it with the Siri remote, but I didn't do much with it. Then the moment the remote app update came out, I'm using it every day. It really? Just, yeah. It just, I just found it so irritating. I would either do stuff on my computer. I've got a Samsung TV that has Amazon video, which is not yet on Apple TV I know. and Netflix. I want that so bad. It's oh, supposedly God. coming. There's no, I mean, if that were there, then suddenly the Apple TV becomes, I think, so much more useful to, you know, some tens of millions of people who have Amazon Prime. But then right. will Amazon start selling the Apple TV when it has the Amazon Prime app, given that they Ooh. stopped selling it, right? I don't know. I don't know. I think Amazon's still going to be holding out. I think it'll hold out a little while longer. I guess that's okay. Try to push like Fire TV and what's their, um, the Echo? Does that have streaming capabilities? I kind of want to try the Echo. Oh, it does. I think it does audio streaming. I think it will take a source you have. No, I can't can't remember. It has a speaker. It'll play audio. Mm -hmm. I know people, have you seen one in person? No, I it's haven't. Huge. But it's kind of big. How big, <laughs> how big did you think it was before you saw a picture of it in context? I just assumed that it would be like, you know, maybe six to nine inches <laughs> and kind of sit discreetly like exactly. on my, you know, TV stand, but oh like all my other things. But no, it's big. Yeah, I walked into, you know, Apple or Amazon opened a bricks and mortar store in Seattle and I went there a uh, week or two after it opened. It's just like a mile from me. It's sort of hilarious. They're taunting me, Amazon is. So I went and I'm walking around. It's a very interesting store. It feels like you're inside a catalog instead of inside a bookstore. Wow. But it's very That's comfortable. <laughs> and the selection of books is really good. It's actually, uh, it is much better than I thought in terms of what they're doing with it, but they have a tiny number of books relative to the amount of space because most of the books are face out. Um, but then I'm walking around and then I see this huge thing. I'm like, what is that? I'm like, oh, it's the Echo. And it's like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's like the size of two Pillsbury dough rolls or something, yeah. but, but bigger diameter. Um, and then I was told people who had one, like uh, Dan Morin and other folks have one of them. They said, oh, of course it's big. It's got a big speaker in it. Like it actually does good audio. Mm-hmm. Um, so it has to be big for the power supply. And they're like, oh, okay. All right. Fair enough. Uh, and it has to have a good mic on it too to be able to pick your pick up your Alexa cues. Yeah, and I think and stuff, it probably so. has multiple mics based on how mm-hmm. those things usually work, so they can filter out noise. And uh, uh, yeah, but the Echo, I mean, that'll be you know. And there's just I think a story just came out uh, just either today or yesterday that uh, Amazon might have a portable Echo you could take with you. Which I'm like, isn't that a phone? Isn't a portable? Yeah, what Echo? would you what would you do with it? I don't. I'm not sure. Maybe you would put it in your car or. You would talk to it while so you're you in the park? So you can buy stuff or talk to Alexa when you're on the road? Uh, okay. I don't know. <laughs> I was a little confused by that. But uh, no, I think I'm, I actually really like the ecosystem Amazon's building out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why when the app comes out, it'll be great. But the the thing, we've got a story at Macworld on Tuesday about um, VLC for Apple TV. I'm so excited to check this out. It's, I, do you have it yet? Have I, you installed it? No, I'm, I'm going to. Now, the issue is I always find is like, so what video like – VLC, for those who have never used it, it's a great app. It's free, an open source project that's been in development for years and years. And it's like, it's just any audio or video format you have, you throw it at it and it opens it. Mm-hmm. And um, But the question is, when do you wind up with stuff that's outside of a purchased ecosystem? Like most of my video is something like H.264 MP. from, you know, whatever. And most of them are probably encrypted with Apple. But then I find, you know, I've got 
stuff I downloaded from a phone. There's legal downloads you can get. You can buy unencrypted movies from some sites. They're like, hey, mm -hmm. um, I've been in Kickstarters where they deliver something as an unencrypted file. Sometimes it's encoded H.264, but sometimes it's in some other format. Um, they only release it as a dot, you know, um, I don't know. I can't even sort of like not move, but whatever the uh, the uh, unencrypted um, AVI or something like that. There's like all these other formats. So, I mean, Dasha, do you wind up, do you have video content that you own where you're like, oh, this is great because I can never play X and now I can just open it? Um, I have some random old MP3 files mm -hmm. that are not living in iTunes and, you know, don't like float over nicely to the TV. So that will be cool. I have to check. I also... Um, I went through and I converted a whole, I made digital copies of a bunch of like my old family movies. Yeah. So I have digital files from those. I don't know. I have to double check what format they are, but that's kind of what I'm picturing using this for. And it might be a lot easier to use this than go through setting it up in a different way. So we'll, also we'll when, see. Yeah. And the whole thing is like right now we're all locked into so many ecosystems, partly because it's hard to play stuff back that isn't in a format of that ecosystem. So, right. you know, are you going to get, are you going to buy video from a third party site that, uh, not even third party, but like first party, they're all going to deliver it in formats anywhere they can read. But once you have uh, this ability, like uh, one of the things um, in the review notes, VLC supports these uh, higher resolution formats like UHD, which is like 2160p. Um, and uh, there's a, a lot of different formats that, uh, gosh, where's the list? Oh, it's like, yeah, uh, VLC will play lossless, MW, yeah, so all the audio formats, right? W WMA lossless, 8FLAC, OGG, or OG. Opus plays surround decode surround sound plays also old real media formats WMV effort like on and on. So my feeling is that this opens up the experience. It's the reason VLC existed was to play anything that was out there mm -hmm. and so that anyone could distribute. I mean, part of this I think boils down to the patent issues that H.264 and some other video formats are tightly protected by patent. Uh, and then in recent years, that's loosened up a bit. So VLC was a necessary thing when you couldn't get legal encoders unless it was a license thing and blah, blah, blah. Right. Uh, and now that that situation has kind of gotten normalized, you can make files in that format without paying, you know, you can use QuickTime for Apple. Maybe you can't sell it without paying license. I'm mm -hmm. not sure of those details, but you can at least create them. So, um, I'm excited to get it and then I can go look and see what are all the, the things that I've only been playing back on a Mac with VLC that I can now actually stream. Yeah. Uh, it's nice to have that option, even though I'm not – if you're not super sure what you might use it for, it's cool to know that it's there and you can put it on your Apple TV and put it on your Mac and your iOS device and kind of be able to share content easily, even though the interface doesn't look like it's that nice. So it might look kind of clunky compared to the other nice, like, beautiful <laughs> Apple TV apps. Well, it's funny how I think – I am keep looking at all the kinds of video playback that's coming. So I was talking about, I think last week, about uh, the Channels app, which lets you tune live television from these HD home run uh, tuners that are network-based over-the-air and cable TV tuners. Uh, you can use Channels app on the uh, Apple TV to – play live TV, but it's not a, a DVR. So we'll only play back stuff that's actually being broadcast at that moment. But mm. it still replaces having to use your TV tuner. It's got a very nice interface. It downloads uh, programming information and previews. So I kind of like that. And so then you've got VLC, which is anything I've stored on the network 
I can access. It'll even let you store. Um, you can transfer files up to a certain size. I've forgotten the limit. It might be two gigs, but uh, you know how the Apple TV has that thing where it'll dump files um, if it needs more storage? You can definitely move stuff, and while VLC is running, it will play it locally off the built-in storage in the Apple TV. Oh, cool. So you're not dealing with network streaming. And there's, right. and there's management issues, but I think that's a clever hack. Yeah. <clears throat> and it fits within Apple's rules. Uh, then we'll get Apple eventually doing streaming channels. We've got Hulu, Netflix. We'll get Amazon at some point. Uh, and then you're like, all right, well, everything, this hobby thing now is not only serious, but every kind of video and audio offering I want, I can get it entirely through the Apple TV, no matter mm -hmm. which service is providing it. I can still, where I have it stored on my network is all in one place. I, I kind of like that. Yeah, version. that's the dream, right? That's what Apple wants, and that's what the users want, too. So hopefully we'll get there. It seems like we're getting there. Yeah, it's powerful enough to do it, I think, is the thing. It's got a powerful processor, so you can throw a ton of stuff at it. I, I still cannot stand – I think every week I say I cannot stand the Siri remote. I think it's a bad design. I wish they it's so – I'm afraid I'm going to break it. I'm kind of surprised I oh. haven't already. Who was it it's, who wrote – was it uh, John Gruber? I just saw someone the other day note, you shouldn't have a device that when you pick it up, uh, you can accidentally do something. Yeah. You shouldn't be afraid to pick it up. I'm like, that's it. If that's I pick true. it up, I might stop it. I might exit. I don't want to touch the thing. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, it's true. I'm terrible. Uh, and uh, this is uh, kind of related. It's a Netflix uh, story that, um, you know, Netflix has been available in on Apple, Apple TV for a while. It's got apps on a lot of platforms. And uh, Netflix just launched in 160 countries with its own content. Um so all the stuff that it's made – or sorry, 190 countries. Let me not understate that. I don't know how many countries there are in the world, like 200-something? It's a lot, and it was a huge announcement all at once. It was all of a sudden like, hey, we've got – we're launching in these countries, and we're going to have you know native programming in this many countries. And then, oh, by the way, <laughs> this other thing we're going to take away from you. It's an interesting move because there's – it has been widely – speculated that a nice hunk of their profit comes from people in China and uh, a number of other countries using these proxies. Although yep. the thing I've heard too is, you know, China, it's become problematic because uh, China's the great firewall of China and uh, mm -hmm. some other tools they use there to block and filter content have really been taking a, a beating in 2015 in terms of slowing down access, throttling uh, and uh, uh, filtering. So it may be that this is part of a move to be able to become legitimized in China so they could offer uh, the service in such a way that the content is inside China, you know, it's pushed to servers oh, there yeah. and then streamed. Uh, so they may already be, uh, have lost a hunk of that market because that market can't reliably use VPNs and other tools that let mm, them yeah, appear maybe. to be outside China. Um, yeah, at least Netflix. I mean, what was funny is over the, you know, over the years, uh, content, uh, licensing companies, um, you know, program producers were apparently getting harder and harder notes with Netflix about filtering. Netflix is like, you know, we do we do things. We're try, trying to make it easy. We, we obey licensing. but And this is like, oh, well, next few weeks, you'll probably see a lot of these things not work. <laughs> like, yeah. Okay. Well, fair enough. Uh, but yeah, at the same time, they're trying to work like nuts to get, you know, licensing. So the stuff that's only available in certain countries and primarily the U.S., they want to open it up. And if you're a company, if you're licensing Downton Abbey, why don't you want it available in 190 countries, the only reason is because yeah, you so have true. existing deals there that they conflict with. But mm -hmm. um, I don't know. In Botswana, maybe not. I thought, was it the island of Mauritius, I think? Or is it uh, Reunion? There was some island that, or Madagascar. Some place was like one of the fastest uptakes, like as percentage of country when Netflix announced it. It was great. Uh, it was wow. un unexpected because they, they may not have a lot of content uh, otherwise available. 
That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah, my sister is actually moving to Beijing in May. So she and I are going through the process. She's like, what do I need to do to get around this firewall? And oh, she's man. like, most importantly, I need Netflix. <laughs> oh, man. So we're going to, I don't know, we're going to, we have some homework to do to kind of figure, figure out the best VPN solution for her. Mac user or Windows can... user? Hmm? Mac? She's a Mac user, okay. yeah. Android or iOS? iOS? She's iOS. That's yep, good. she's all tapped in. There's some. Uh, we we should talk in a future podcast. I'll get somebody on who's an expert about um, computing in China because uh, all my friends who are in the security world and even those who are not, they're like, "Oh, if you ever go to China, bring a burner computer." I'm like a burner computer, like yeah, get a cheap Chrome computer and don't type any passwords into it. Create a throwaway mail account, and then when you come back, destroy it. I'm like, really? They're like, yeah, really, <laughs> really. <laughs> okay. Wow. Yeah. Okay, good. Yep. She has an old Mac, so maybe we'll <clears throat> wipe it. And then she can just take it, and then when she's back, that she'll be, get a brand new one. Be a good idea. She'll think like about passwords, idea. and uh, anytime she, uh, yeah, we should do. That would be actually very good. I think I'll. Uh, That'd be fascinating. Get, uh, Rich Mogul has written quite a bit for MacWorld and for tidbits about security. He's a security analyst. Has traveled in China, uh, like tips for going overseas into China, particularly. But yeah. I think this is cycles back to the security thing. Is you get these security warnings, and sometimes we're so inured to them uh, because you see them all the time. The, I read this great presentation by someone on the Chrome browser team, oh, I want to say a year plus ago, in which they were testing very carefully, changing the kind of errors they showed in Chrome to see how people would respond, whether they'd answer. And they'd gone from these very cryptic, you know, technical kinds of things that just said, hey, something's wrong and had details to mm -hmm. much more elaborate things, including stuff where users had to do actions. Not only was it friendly looking and clear with a detailed explanation you could link to, but also, I think you had to click through and acknowledge you're accepting risk, and they found dramatic shifts in behavior. And so, Whoa. you know, people in China will report, like, I'm connecting, and my VPN says, hey, warning, there's somebody involved in this connection. Do you want to proceed? Like, oh, maybe I shouldn't do that. You Man, know? wow. So, yeah. Well, that'll be a good topic. I will put that on our topic list, and uh, okay. listeners who have ideas about traveling abroad safely, not to suspect any particular government – God forbid we say that America isn't doing stuff like this. Who knows? Mm -hmm. Who knows what America is doing with computers when people enter from other countries? Uh, we can't say for sure. But uh, so we could hear from Europeans and Chinese coming to America and uh, telling us what American the American government has done to their computers while they're here. Uh, but yeah, that'll be great. Well, good luck to her. Beijing is supposed to be a fascinating city. I hope she's got enough air filters. But um, oh, I know. I'm I'm looking into some like fun, customized, you know, designs for her as like a parting gift for her little oh air filters. Gosh. But yeah, it's gonna be exciting, and I can't wait to go visit her. Hopefully, so and uh, make sure whatever computer she has can be opened up and clean. Would she bring a laptop? You have to make sure and uh, be able to open them up and blow air through that thing to uh, to keep it from getting coated with dust. Smart. Or sealed computers. Yeah, this is actually the best time. You know, one of the topics that I, we're not going to get into this week, but uh, I keep hearing talk about, you know, future Apple devices being waterproof. I'm like, waterproof oh, yeah. doesn't necessarily mean particles can't get in, but it does it's, uh, yeah, mean it's yeah. less likely that particles get in as well. Mm -hmm. Big issue in places like that. Uh, That's a really good point. I didn't even think about the particle infiltration. I'm just terrified. Your sister's going to be like, <laughs> what, who are you talking to? What is he saying? This person. Well, I think uh, I think we wrapped up all the, all the news uh, – that's been going on this last week. It's January. As we say, January is quiet. There's always things happening. But listeners, please let us know what you're interested in. We keep getting suggestions from people via uh, email, podcast at macworld.com. You can go to macworld.com and comment on the post in which this item is posted. You can reach me on the Twitter at Glenn F, G-L-E-N-N-F. 
and tell me, say, hey, Glenn, why don't you talk about blank? And uh, and then we'll fill in those blanks for you. And Leah, it's been terrific to talk to you. Thank you for pinch hitting this week. Oh, this was so much fun, Glenn. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. And this has been episode 491 of the Matt Grohl Podcast for January 20th, 2016. Thanks, folks, for listening. And we'll be back next week. <laughs>